What's up, everybody? How you doing? Uh, welcome into another episode of Crunch Time with Cruck. We're a little light this week on guest appearances. We're down to just Corey Casaneda and Brock Guzzi. Tim Hackett is probably going to be done for this season now that he's finished up NHL. We're currently in the process of looking for other things that he could tackle, potentially the Olympics, but we'll get back to you later on that. Papa Krug stepping aside this week. Uh, he's going to let me try to tackle the golf world, so we're going to see how that works. But we still have baseball talk with Guzzi and basketball talk with Corey. So let's jump right into the beef of the show with some sports. The Olympics are coming up, and man, things are looking good. Here are some athletes that you should honestly be aware of going into the Olympics. You know, first and foremost, the GOAT of gymnastics, Simone Biles. At only 24 years of age, she's a five-time world all-around champion and the defending Olympic champ. She has been the best in the gymnastic world since 2016, and it's amazing. Because when she won it, she was only 18 years old, which is why she's 24 now for those who, are, who aren't the math wizards in the world. That's why you're listening to a sports podcast. And, I mean, it's, it's crazy to think about an 18-year-old kid growing up and being the greatest gymnast ever at 18 and then continuing it for six years. It's almost a dynasty just by herself, really. You know, you look at the Patriots in the 2010s, you know, they were a dynasty because almost every year you were like, oh, yeah, they're making it to the Super Bowl. Simone Biles literally changed the rules of gymnastics. They put a cap on how hard her routine can be. She was performing at routines so elite that she was in her own bracket. Everybody else was competing in their own bracket, and they said, Simone, you have to compete with everybody else because we can't judge you against anybody else, which is flattering because, you know, you think to yourself, hey, I'm that good that they have to tell me to, you know, kind of try it down just so other people can try to compete. But at the same time, you can only get as good as you're allowed to go. And they're basically putting a ceiling on how good she can perform, which isn't very nice. But at the same time, if there's no competition, then why would anybody else even try? Uh, there's another gymnast as well who people should be on the lookout, and that is Sunisa Lee. Uh, she's an 18-year-old. She finished second behind uh, Simone Biles at the Olympic trials and had the highest four-event total on day two, the first of any gymnast to top Biles in any day of the competition in more than eight years. So this girl, Lee, can really do what she does good. And it looks like the uneven bars is one of her best... Uh, aspects of the game switching to men's gymnastics Brody Malone is going to take on the the USA flag for us in Tokyo in the Summer Olympics he is a two-time NCAA all-around champion at 21 and he is he was defeated he defeated a six-time national champion in June to win his first senior all-around title so both men's and women's gymnastics looking pretty solid out of the gate. Moving forward, 
We got a couple other athletes here. Alyssa Felix. She's going to be running track and field. She is a nine-time Olympic medalist and will make one last Olympic appearance in Tokyo, competing in the 400 and then possibly the women's 4x400 or the mixed-gender 4x400, which that is a new event. So, you know, co-ed, I think you would want to lead with – I think you'd want to go back and forth, go uh, female, male, female male and then have that man be the anchor at the end personally just because like you get that last 100 you get like a usain bolt you know you get a noah lyles who can just absolutely dust people speaking of noah lyles he's also another name to look out for at 23 years old he'll be making his olympic debut and he is the reigning world champion in the 200 meter and won the race at the olympic world trials in june so, I mean, this guy can flat out run. You know, he punched his ticket to Tokyo, and he's looking to make the most of it. Uh, also in track and field, Sydney McLaughlin. She's looking to do the 400-meter hurdles and will be one of the most anticipated races at these Olympics as she's going head-to-head -head against Rio gold medalist and U.S. teammate uh, Muhammad. So, make sure to be on the lookout for that one. USA versus USA. Hopefully we take home the gold and silver in that bracket. Sticking with track and field, but going to the field aspect of it, Gwen Berry is going to be doing her hammer throw as she did last month at the Olympic Trials. She has been pretty active on social media, posting a lot of pictures uh, claiming, you know, the activist athlete. And honestly, you know, I'm not here to talk about the political aspect of sports. Everybody knows there is a political aspect of sports. I'm just going to be simply addressing the um, athlete side. And she's a great athlete and a great, well-rounded person. So, you know, tops to her. Carly Lloyd, uh, she's going to be on the soccer team along with Megan Ropine. Or... Excuse me, uh, Megan Rapino. So make sure to watch those two. You know, the pink hair and iconic pose, Megan, will be taking it on with this Carly Lloyd. And Carly Lloyd has been doing pretty good. So those two are going to be really good to watch. Kevin Durant is going to be the basketball player to watch. Um, so. You know, basketball had a tough little, tough, tough couple of games there. Lost against two teams, which really isn't America's style, but it did happen. So, uh, Sue Bird for the women's team at 40. Bird, uh, who has four championships with the Seattle Storm, is the oldest current player in the WNBA. And, uh, yeah, let's see if she can get a gold medal. How about that one? Uh, Diana Taurasi is also up there. She's 39 years old and a three-time WNBA champion with the Phoenix Mercury, one of the best shooters in the game right now. So, I mean, between those two, you know, we're looking pretty good for women's basketball. Back in the pool, Katie Ledecky, I mean, if you saw her in the last Olympics, this Olympics is going to be even more fun to watch. She could probably keep up with some of the men 
the way that she swims and how well that she swims. Um, honestly. And then another swimming person, uh, Simone Manuel. Make sure to keep a lookout on her. She's 24 years old. She won four medals, two golds and two silvers in her first Olympic Games back in 2016 in Rio. Looking to do a little bit better this time around. Um, Caleb Dressel will be swimming for the Olympics. And he has been widely considered the next Michael Phelps. The sprint superstar Dressel is a six-time world champion and the world record holder in the 100-meter butterfly, 100-meter individual medley, and 50-meter freestyle. So those are honestly the people that you want to look out for in the upcoming Olympics. And, oh, one more. New, not really new to the golf scene, but a new name that's really emerged, in my opinion, recently. Bryson DeChambeau will be swinging his clubs with the stars and stripes on his back and probably the front of his polo for the Olympics coming up. And honestly, I'm a huge fan of Bryson DeChambeau, and I think he's going to do a really good job and probably bring home the gold for us if he's got his stroke you know, timed up perfectly. Before we get too much into NBA, we're going to send it over to Corey. Corey, give us a breakdown. The finals have already started. You know, the Bucks, the Suns, the Bucks are winning right now. And I personally said, I thought the Suns were going to do it in six. But it looks like if the Suns are going to do it, it's got to go all seven. Corey, tell us who you think is going to win. And... I mean, give us some insight on it. What do we need to know about this NBA Finals? Thanks for having me back on the show for another episode. We got some NBA Finals news. The Suns Bucks. So far, it's going into Game 6. The Bucks are up 3-2. They came back from a pretty big series lead with Suns up 2-0. That's obviously a great way to start off your series if you're the Suns. You're up 2 nothing. The Bucks would have to win four st- or three straight to take the lead. But they would have to win three straight, but it'd be they'd have to win quite a few games. This is pretty big for the Suns. They got the early lead, but I feel like after that they just let off, let their feet off the gas, stopped pushing, weren't really as motivated. I think they kind of got lazy and thought they had they had the series in the bag, and now they're down three two. The Bucks got into the back into the series quite commandingly. The Giannis had two forty point games so far in this series. Chris Middleton has one forty point game in the series. Devin Booker also had two forty point games. Games four and five were his night. Chris Middleton and the game four. Chris Middleton and Devin Booker both had 40 points. Is really a duel between them. In that game four, Chris Paul had 10 points. So the Suns were a little short-handed from the fact that they didn't have all their players scoring well and being very efficient in offense. But it was still a pretty close game for the Suns and Bucks. Chris Paul has been widely criticized by a lot of people for being inconsistent in series. He'll go off for 40 to to 20 points to 10 points it's really inconsistent for the Suns and I feel that that kind of hurts them but that game five I felt he had a solid 21 points to go along with Devin Booker's 40 point game the Suns came out firing right away they got a 16 point lead in the first quarter but then the Bucks they were able to come back they chopped the lead down which is how you want to come back 
DeAndre Ayton was punishing the Bucks switch on defense. They were able to correct that in order to maintain their place in the game. They kept a pretty close game and eventually survived. In crunch time, with the with the Suns having quite a few turnovers, that I think cost them the game. The turnovers happened on plays where they had a chance to either tie or take the lead. But when you look at the rosters, the Bucks are much older team. Giannis had more league more years in the league than DeAndre Ayton has, who he matches up against. This experience for Giannis is very good for him, as he can easily overpower Ayton with that using his knowledge he has from playing against big men for the past eight years, whereas DeAndre Ayton has played against big men for only the past two years. The Bucks also have played more centers, teams that are that revolve more on centers. Sianis has gotten a warm-up this whole time playing against more big men. Moving away from that, that point, for the Suns to come back in the series, they'll need to win two games in order to win the finals. So for them to come back, they'll need to come out hammering like they did in the first quarter of that game five. But they also have to maintain that aggression throughout the whole game. Because within minutes of the second quarter, the Bucks overtook that lead and went into halftime up by two points. I'm unsure if the reason that the Suns lose their lead is because they take it, they take the game not very serious and think that they'll win, or if it's because they are tired. But no matter what the reason is, they need to come out and they need to maintain the aggression that they have usually in the first quarter. They'll also need a pretty, they'll also need a decent game from Chris Paul, who'll ha probably have to score at least 20 points. Devin Booker will probably have to have 30 points, and they also need to feed DeAndre Ayton more, give him the give him more post shots, because there's been games in the series where he has only had 10 points and and only took 10 shots, and there's also been a game in the series where he scored six points and only took nine shots. So we'll definitely have to give him the ball, and though they should look to feed him like they did in Game Five, where he scored 20 points. He went out hammering and really punished the Bucks' defense for switching on the pick and roll. But if the Bucks stopped in the pick and roll, then it'll open up the game more for shooters on the team like Devin Booker, Cam Johnson, and Mikael Bridges, because they have very quick release in their shot, and they can get it off for the defense's time to recover. And for the Bucks to win, they just need to keep playing how they've been playing. And if they go down by a lot quickly, just remember that there's more more time left in the game and there's more time for them to come back. And they also have to only win one game out of the potential two games left that this series could go to. Well said, Corey. I couldn't have honestly said it better myself. The way that you worked it through and the way that you told us exactly how well the Suns, you know, spread the court and honestly have a more available three-point shot than the Bucks do because in an era of new school basketball where you want to spread the court, you want to be taking three-pointers, you know, 30% of the time, the Bucks are an old-school team, and they're trying to get the ball in the post, trying to drive, trying to dunk, get the layup. You know, honestly, they shoot the mid-range shot with Chris Middleton, Bobby Portis, Drew Holiday, Maybe undersized, but he gets down in that paint and he doesn't care. So, honestly, I really like, I really like the Suns still, even though they're down three to two right now. By the way, I didn't say this earlier, but these facts will be accurate as of ten thirty, July nineteenth.
I'm still a fan of the Suns. I think the Suns have a better chance of spreading the floor. And they're not really focused on two players. They have they have three players who can consistently score the ball. They have a fourth and fifth player who can get it done every once in a while. And then the rest of their players are mainly severe role players. Where if they were asked to step up in the limelight, I don't think they could. The Bucks, on the other hand, the Bucks have Chris Middleton, Giannis Antetokounmpo. Bobby Portis has a good game every one in like five, six games. Drew Holiday, if he shows up and he acts like he's still in the Pelicans, he can be a good player. But that's asking a lot. Brooke Lopez, super tall, not super physical. If he's got the corner three open, you got to give him the ball because he's going to hit it more times than not. But that's, I mean, DiVincenzo, like if, if he's still even playing for the Bucks, I mean... Honestly, Giannis and Chris Middleton are going to have to carry the team. I do not believe what Stephen A. was true. I do not believe that Chris Middleton is Batman and Giannis is Robin. Giannis is most definitely Batman. You don't win two MVPs being a Robin. Sorry, Stephen A. You get paid a lot more than I do, so you can wipe your tears with your $100 bills, but he's not the Robin. Giannis Antetokounmpo is most definitely, most definitely the Batman in that situation. But with that said, Giannis Antetokounmpo is favored to be the finals MVP if the Bucks win it, which this will be the first time in a long time that somebody other than a small forward will win the finals MVP. And just looking down the list right now, it goes Giannis at first, first for best odds, and then Devin Booker, and then Chris Paul. So the top three aren't even small forwards. And the small forward, for those who don't know, that is a position that Kevin Durant, LeBron James. Wow, really skipping on names here. These are some of the best players. Um, Kawhi Leonard, Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris, for those who are 76ers fans, um, Jason Tatum. You know, these are the players who can play like guards, but at the same time, they're tall. I'm talking between 6'6 and 6'9 range. So, the three spot for those who also, you know, number them. The five being the center, the one being the point guard. I'm talking about number three or the small forward. So, I think it's kind of cool, you know, to really really change it up because nobody likes to see the same person win it over and over that's voter fatigue but Giannis Antetokounmpo has really stepped it up lately and according to my main man Kirk Goldsberg excuse me Kirk Goldsberry uh he's an ESPN staff writer he's comparing Giannis to Tim Duncan Charles Barkley Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and honestly I I'd agree with him you know what, Mr. Goldsberry, you're right. Giannis, this season, has really stepped up, and he's been playing like a round mound of rebound. He's been playing like the big fundamental. He's been playing like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Don't know his nickname off the top of my head. These players are great. These players are remembered for a long time. You don't win two MVPs back-to-back -back years. You don't play in a city 
like Milwaukee, which is still one of the few small market teams in the NBA landscape, and get noticed like this. I mean, yeah, there's two other Antetokounmpo's in the league, but neither of them even come close to starting. Giannis Antetokounmpo is just an entirely different animal. I think he's going to go down. When it's all said and done, if he continues what he's doing, it's going to all go down. I'd give him top five power forward of all time. I think he's that good. I think he can get up there in top five power forward power forwards of all time. Moving forward, tackling golf. So hang, <laughs> hang in there with me. The... The Open Championship uh, just finished, and it was over in England. It was in Kent, England, and it was at Royal St. George's Golf Golf Club. For those who don't know this, uh, looking at it, it's not the traditional Masters, you know, Kelly Green, perfect colors. It looks kind of dingy, right? Like marsh. There's marsh in the rough. Looks kind of dingy, you know, not bright colors. There's only one tree in the entire course, and it's not even in play. It's between, I think it's the 13th and 14th hole, and it really doesn't cast that much shade. So, I mean, it's a sunny course. The wind's coming in all the time. So, it's right on, you know, it's right on the water. And the guy who ended up winning is Colin Morikawa. He won it, and he was 15 under. You know, looking at his, looking at his scoreboard in round four, he ended up with four birdies to put him at, you know, four under for the day. But, I mean, this guy had a bogey in the first round, but made it a little bit easier on himself with, you know, four other birdies. So he ended three under on round one. Round two, he really came out the gate strong, and he started with a birdie. And before he had his first bogey, he had seven birdies, and he ended six under. Round three didn't start that hot. He had, he went par, bogey, par, par, bogey. So, you know, after five holes, he was two over, but then he ended up hitting four birdies throughout the rest of the day to get back to two under and then he obviously finished with 15 under so you know he looked really good coming out the gates i'm not gonna lie he looked really good but the guy who i honestly liked the most was uh he ended up third a south african man by the name of Luis uthsazen and he finished you know tied for third at 11 under but the first day he was six under par, and that was awesome. The second day, he was five under par, and then he really just fell off from there and finishing his last two rounds an average of par. So, you know, it's it's tough. He finished 11 under, which, you know, if you followed me on the math, it would make sense. But it's it's tough, you know. you go You go that well. And then, you know, you eventually just fall off the wagon that hard. And you just, you don't like to see it. The hole that gave the most people troubles 
it looks like it was hole number seven. Hole number seven is a par five, and it is 566 yards to the pin. And the average score there was a 4.85, so it's still under par. There were 13 eagles on it, which is really well. There's 127 birdies. There were 254 pars, but there was 62 bogeys and then nine double bogeys. So not really looking too amazing there. The hole that had the most bogeys, surprisingly enough, though, was hole number 15. Hole number 15 was a par. It was a longer par for it, just under 500 yards. And that had 160 bogeys on it. That's not something you're looking for to really do there. But the top three, back to you know the top three, they round out uh, Colin Morikawa at number one, Jordan Spieth at number two, and then John, John Rahm, which... John Rahm and then Luis Uthazen tied for third, both of them, which both of them are huge fans or have fans in this household. I am a Luis Uthazen fan, and then my dad is a John Rahm fan, which neither of them are from, you know, America, so they're not really home team guys, but I like Uthazen because I just like to say his last name, and then my dad likes John Rahm because, you know, he's been on the course for a while. And he hasn't done too terribly bad. Uh, Rom actually started the actually started the tournament round one. You know he was he started off one over par, and then his second round is what brought him back into it. He finished the first half of the tournament five under, and then between the last two rounds, he somehow got to eleven under. So, you know. Morikawa, the guy who won the tournament, got $2.1 million, but more importantly, his FedEx points. And for those who don't know what FedEx points are, that's how you're ranked come, like, tournament and major time. So the Open, you want more FedEx points to get a better tee time later in the day. The Masters, a better tee time later in the day. You know, pick your tournament, more or less. And it's really really important to get these points because you need them moving forward so 600 fedex points really good 2.1 million also not really something to squawk at but you know just honestly good for these guys golf golf is somewhat of a dying sport but i'm glad to see that they're keeping it keeping it relative keeping it going before we get too much further, we're going to jump into MLB with Brock Guzzi. Brock, the All-Star break just wrapped up. What do we need to know about it? How's it going, everybody? Uh, Brock hopping on, talking a little baseball. A um, couple days after the All-Star break, I thought it was a great weekend altogether uh, between the Home Run Derby and the All-Star game. Uh, Otani was kind of the main headliner, even though he got knocked out in the first round in the Home Run Derby. I thought him and Juan Soto had the best round between Juan Soto. Uh, I mean, he hit the furthest ball ever hit in the home run derby, 520 feet. Um, Otani took about a minute or so to get, you know, kind of get going. But um, after he did, he was hitting balls. He was hitting balls just as far as anyone. Um, 
Pete Alonzo, obviously, been there, done that. Um, he was just a machine out there hitting balls. I mean, back row with the left field bleachers, probably hit a few off the scoreboard. I mean, he was really running laps around everyone, it seemed like. But uh, anyway, for the game, obviously Shohei leading off pitching. He was, again, the, the headliner. Um, you know, obviously he didn't do much at the plate, but went one, two, three. It's kind of kind of more the fact that he did it is what's impressive, obviously. Um, but Vlad Jr., uh, his first at bat right up the middle, almost hit Max Scherzer, giving him a hug. And then the next at bat just hitting an absolute missile into left field. I thought that was pretty awesome. He had a great night, obviously, winning the MVP. Uh, other guys who had good nights, Freddie Peralta from the Brewers struck off the side. Um, I mean, obviously the All-Star game, there's not – Small sample size, couple of bats, one inning, but I mean it's good to shine on the you know on the national stage. Uh, the the ratings obviously the national. Speaking of a national stage, they were above the NBA uh, All Star Weekend and and the Pro Bowl by a couple million, so that's good for the game. Um, but uh, going into the second half, you know uh, some news around town: the Cubs traded Jock Peterson to the Braves for uh, you know a first baseman and single A. I want to say he's in. Uh, obviously, Cubs in sell mode. Uh, not much to really look forward to this year for the Cubs. Um, you know, that 12-game losing streak really dug themselves into a hole. Looked like they were maybe a little, you know, maybe contenders for the, the division there for a little bit. But obviously, you can't really lose 12 games in any part of the season in a row. Uh, so, Jock gone. You know, you, you wonder who's going to be next, whether it's going to be Chris Bryant, Will Contreras. Uh, you know, any really anybody, Craig Kimbrell is gonna probably a good one to pick. Rizzo, Baez, um, you know, some other guys around the league that you could probably look forward to seeing traded is Jose Barrios from the from the Twins. He's a he's a perennial top pitcher in the American League. Uh, Eduardo Escobar, switch hitter from the Diamondbacks. I could see the Brewers maybe being interested. Um, Jose Ramirez from the Indians, uh, another switch hitter who probably draw a lot of interest from teams. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of good other relievers that are going to be moved before the deadline, obviously, like always. Um, but some, but some teams going to the second half, uh, to look forward to the national league. I really think the Brewers are, uh, you know, they got the teams in the NLS, but the, I think the Brewers might really come out of the national league with that three headed monster. They got Freddie Peralta, Brandon Woodruff and Corbin Burns, uh, you know, in a playoff setting, hand the ball to those three guys, three games in a row. Uh, you know, you're really giving yourself a good start and then being able to close out games with Josh Hader. You got Devin Williams, who's been there before. I mean, uh, you know, they've really been the best team in baseball since they acquired really Adamas from the Rays. So um, they're looking to add a bat, like I said, maybe an Eduardo Escobar type. I don't think the Cubs would ever trade anyone in division to them. I mean, maybe, but um, you never know. But uh, from the American League, I think the, the Red Sox, the Red Sox are... Uh, are looking good uh they're hitting the ball well uh their rotation kind of was the question mark coming into the season but uh they've kind of weathered the storm obviously they're in first they're in first place in the the east uh, yankees kind of falling apart still uh chris sales back throwing for him so that'll solidify the rotation a little bit more bring a little bit more veteran or uh more of a veteran presence um another team that to watch out for is the white Sox. Um, I think those teams are kind of very similar other than I think the White Sox have a little bit stronger pitching, but I mean, you know, they've kind of got veteran guys at the head of their stabs. 
they're they're they can hit they can hit the ball and uh you know they're obviously both leading their division they're they're the top dog um some you know maybe looking forward to some uh award winners uh al mvp i would have to give to shohei um he's i mean i don't know i don't see how you don't if he even comes close to duplicating what he's done this season or this uh first half of the season 33 home runs uh three something era uh i mean obviously i mean vlad jr vlad jr's having a great year he's looking like a triple crown candidate but i mean i just don't see how you don't give it to shohei if the season were to end today uh cy young i'm probably i would have to go with uh uh lance lynn from the from the uh White Sox. He's got a sub two ERA at the moment. I think he's nine and three. So I mean, the the, the top pitchers really belong in the National League, and the top dogs obviously Degrom. He I think he might will. I think he's going to win both awards, National and uh, National League MVP and Cy Young. So uh, kind of just some things to look forward to in the second half. And uh, you know, there should be some good baseball being played. Uh, so a lot to look forward to. Great insight as always. Um, you did a great job on the MLB. I'm going to touch on a couple more things here. Uh, looking at the scores right now. Holy cow. The, the game's not over yet. It's the bottom of the 10th right now. But the Mets are beating the Reds 15-11. to 11, Which would give a combined score of 26. Which isn't even the highest scoring game. You know, in a long time, if we go back just a little bit, the Dodgers, excuse me, the Padres and the Nationals, that game ended 24 to 8. And Cronenworth hit for the cycle. And then another person on the team, Will Myers, hit a grand slam and a two run homer. I don't know if Spider Tack made that much of a difference. But baseballs and scores are flying off the sheets. I mean, it's it's hard to watch if you're a baseball purist because there's there's really not a whole lot of good pitching left. But I mean, these these hitters are absolutely killing the ball. There's there's no excuse behind it. These hitters are absolutely putting charges into these pitches. So. It's something awesome to watch. It's awesome to see how well they're doing hitting the baseballs. But, you know, I just, I personally, I like the low-scoring shutout games. I like to make history. Uh, looking at some of the possible names who could be moving around before the season's over, you know, some of the big names, Chris Bryant, Everybody knows that Chris Bryant is going to leave Chicago sooner or later. But is it going to be sooner or later? And he was very collected at the All-Star break. He said it could happen. I could be here for two days, two months, two years, ten years. It's all up in the air. Um, looking at who he would probably want to go to or would want to have him, the New York Mets had a lot of interest in him before the season started, but they couldn't shut the door on him. So, you know, that's something to look at. Uh, other names really there, Adam Frazier, 
uh, as as a second baseman, there's that's somebody who you could probably see going in free agency. Somebody moving around, somebody having some fun with it. You know, it's there's a lot of stuff in the air with free agency. It's hard to say who exactly is going where. But I would not be surprised to also see center fielder uh, Byron Buxton uh, get moved before the deadline because, I mean, he's been having a great year this year. Absolutely fantastic. Last year he was mainly just a defensive glove and then, you know, a speed demon on the base path. But this year his bats really stepped up as well. You know, he can get on base with more than just a drag bunt or a normal bunt. I mean, this guy can really hit the ball and hit it with power some of the time with power. Hit the ball well with contact a lot of the time. He's no Tony Gwynn, but he's doing decent. And then to wrap up today, uh, we're going to talk about the X Games just real quick. Uh, Looking at the X Games, the main thing I really want to talk about, there's a 12-year-old... A 12-year-old boy named Guy Curie who pulled off a 1080 on the uh, skateboard vert best trick and ends up winning it. And the best part about this is he did it right in front of his idol in most skateboarders' idols, Tony Hawk. Tony Hawk was standing right there on the half pike. And this guy went up, did the 1080. And, I mean, you could see the expression on Tony Hawk's face. This guy was so happy for him. And I like that the most about sports. Individual sports, there's really two ways to be about it. You can be a bummer. You can be down. You can be, whoa, you know, I have to win. This is all on me. Or you can be an easygoing guy. You know, you can have fun with it. Like Bryson DeChambeau, he had fans kicked out of the kicked out of the course for heckling him. And Kepka bought them all beers. I mean... That's literally the two kinds of people we're talking about here. Easy going, and I have to win at all costs. Those are the two kinds of people. And unfortunately, there's too many of the I have to win at all costs people. Sports are meant to be competitive, but at the same time, you start them and you enjoy them because you have fun doing them. You don't get good because you hate a sport. You get good because you enjoy playing the sport And eventually somewhere down the line, for too many people, that falls. That falls apart. I play football in college. Brock Guzzi plays baseball in college. And Corey Castaneda plays basketball and I believe baseball in high school. And I mean, we still play the sport because we love it. We don't play the sport because, you know, other people are vicariously living through us. We play the sport because... We want to do it, and we love playing this sport. So that's going to wrap it up mainly here for us at the podcast. As always, like, share, subscribe, YouTube, podcast, you know, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get it, anchor.fm if you're one of the OGs who likes it on there. Uh, But, yeah. Yeah, just uh, honestly, have fun with it. Uh, If you haven't tried a sport or you haven't done a sport in a while, I have a very fun activity for you. Grab a tennis ball or any squeezy hand-sized ball of that sort. Look at a wall. Be within 10, 12 feet. Just throw the wall. Throw the ball at the wall for a while. 
hand-eye coordination. Have some fun with it. Grab your grab your parent, grab parent, son, grandchild. Go out in the yard, play catch, have fun. I mean, it's summer, guys. And if you don't want to do any of those, watch the Sandlot, preferably on VHS tape because those were the best days. But if you don't want to do any of those, watch the Sandlot or honestly just do something with sports. Listening to sports is fine and dandy, but do something with sports. As always, Jacob Krukenberg, Corey Castaneda, Brock Guzzi. Love listen. We love having you guys listen to us. Any questions, comments, concerns, feel free to leave a comment in the YouTube. Or, you know, you can always reach us at crunchtimewithcruck at gmail.com. Until next time, Jake Krugenberg. See you later.